Welcome to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. As COVID-19 continues to take hundreds of lives each day in the United States, public health officials say minorities are being affected disproportionately. Early data shows that African-Americans and other U.S. ethnic minorities are contracted COVID-19 at a higher rate and experiencing greater sickness and a higher death rate than other Americans. With us to discuss this important topic is Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert, Dr. Irene Sear, and community internal medicine physician, Dr. Wieland. Welcome both of you to the program. So Dr. Sia, we just talked about how uh, COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting uh, different ethnic minorities. Can you explain why these uh, populations are vulnerable to this? Well, these populations are vulnerable to COVID-19 for a variety of reasons. And some of the reasons include that they have the social economic disadvantage, they have low health literacy, they have immigration status that makes them maybe not um, uh, accessible to or eligible for some of the resources that we have. They have limited English proficiency for, so those are some of the reasons why they're more, more vulnerable to COVID-19. And Dr. Whelan, in, in your practice, how have you seen this manifesting? What we see from the data kind of nationally is that you can look at this kind of from a biomedical lens, but also from a social determinants lens, which is kind of how we see things play out across the board with a variety of health disparities. So from a biomedical aspect, um, the higher infection rates and deaths in these populations are related to existing health inequities. So namely, we know the people with chronic diseases that lead to worse COVID outcomes uh, like diabetes, obesity, and hypertension are disproportionately uh, impacting uh, racial and ethnic minority populations, for example, and this predates the COVID epidemic, of course. Um, and then also disproportionate barriers to healthcare access and utilization. But then if we widen the, the lens a bit more, uh, there are additional observations that may increase susceptibility. So for example, when you look at um, housing and living conditions, communities with higher racial and ethnic minority populations have higher housing density and more housing insecurity, which makes the social distancing piece harder. And there is less access to healthy foods, which make chronic disease management more difficult, particularly in these times. Um, racial and ethnic min minorities are less likely to have the privilege of working from home. Uh, they're less likely to have paid sick leave. They're more likely to be essential workers during the pandemic and they're more likely to use public transportation or to carpool. So kind of in total, both the disproportionate biomedical risk factors and their social determinants lead back to um, many kind of root causes, including things like you know, structural racism. The legacy of redlining and housing segregation comes to mind um, as just one example of ways in which these inequities were put in place by design. And so it's up to us to take them out of place also by design. So in that way, you know, the COVID crisis may provide an opportunity to collectively act on these root causes of fundamental inequities that have really been frequently demonstrated here by the pandemic. So when we look at what's happening within the United States, have you seen uh, particular geographic areas within the country more affected than others? The data from the United States are difficult to put together in definitive ways. Um, so it's, it's hard to say definitively in terms of uh, age-adjusted models, but the signal is very clear that no matter where you look, um, in particular, Blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans are contracting and dying from the disease at a disproportionate rate. So what are we doing to try and address that? Um, well, that's a good question. I think in the short term, uh, we can do everything we can in terms of risk communication with, with vulnerable populations to make sure that the message is there, that their voices are being lifted up so that we can respond in uh, responsible ways as a healthcare community as, and as a health community more broadly. So Dr. Sia, uh, as an infectious disease expert and working with uh, Dr. Whelan, can you tell us about your uh, partnership with the Rochester Health Community um, 
So the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership started in 2004. This was in response to another infectious disease concern, an issue that was disproportionately affecting racial and ethnic minorities and specifically immigrants and refugees at that time. And so uh, community and academic partners then came together and decided to work together and decided to use an approach called community-based participatory research. And that is an approach to research that equitably involves community and academic partners in all phases of the research. So the community has as much voice in the process and in the um, implementation of the research as academics are. And over the years, we have responded to different uh, health uh, concerns brought up by the community, and now it's COVID-19. So Dr. Whelan, can you tell us about the research study that you've been doing at Mayo Clinic? So the context for this project is that we were sorting out the logistics of pausing some of our partnership studies because of social distancing. And by partnership, I mean the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership that Dr. Sia referred to. And with our community partners, we're reflecting on how RHCP could leverage this network to help address the COVID-related disparities. And in particular, community partners noted that while credible information exists and existed um, about COVID from health and, and healthcare institutions, it wasn't reaching uh, these vulnerable immigrant communities in particular. Um, this relates to kind of another source of inequities that we were talking about with the pandemic, which are communication gaps um, as it relates to language congruence, outreach to vulnerable communities, and uh, sometimes mistrust of health institutions. So the concept was then this idea of leveraging community-engaged research partnerships for crisis and emergency risk communication to vulnerable populations in the, in the pandemic. Uh, so in doing so, we adopted the CDC crisis and emergency risk communication framework for disseminating information. We co-created messages with community partners around three constructs. The first was COVID uh, prevention and containment. The second was local resources for COVID testing. And the third was social and economic uh, fallout from the pandemic. Um, since then, uh, the uh, communication leaders were curated by community partners for their high credibility and trustworthiness. And they've been delivering these messages um, within six language groups uh, within their social networks of vulnerable populations throughout Southeast Minnesota through a variety of formats. So voice calls, text messages, social media platforms, and so on. The important thing though about the intervention is that it surfaces bi-directional communication with these, with these communities. So for the first two weeks, we had daily phone calls with these communication leaders, now they're bi-weekly, where we would surface concerns and questions raised by community members in response to the messages. Many of the questions um, could be answered by Dr. C or myself or other medical experts in real time if they were, if they were clinical questions or by community experts on the, on the call if it came to connecting to resources. And then if not, additional referral mechanisms were in place with com community partners. And this communication allowed us to refine the messages in real time and generate messages of the day based on common questions. And they allowed us to surface the needs of vulnerable communities to regional decision makers so that those voices could be lifted up. And we think that because community academic partnerships like ours are so ubiquitous throughout the U US, of course, no one partnership is the same, but because there are so many, we think that the framework may serve as a model for other partnerships to borrow from, and we're collaborating with three partnerships in this capacity now. now this is a tremendous work, and thank you and the team for doing this. You mentioned six different languages. What, what languages uh, did you uh, include? So this is a combination of the languages that are most prevalent in Southeast Minnesota and who happen to be our partners. And so it was uh, Somali, um, so the languages were Somali, Spanish, uh, Khmer, 
Arabic relative to the South Sudanese community, Anuak, Ethiopian. That's it, right, Irene? That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Sia, um, what, what are the sort of main questions that you've been asked from uh, community leaders uh, about uh, ethnic disparities with COVID-19? What have you learned? Well, uh, initially, it was, about, it was about symptoms and testing. So we responded to that by explaining to them who, uh, who would be tested and where they should get testing. And then, then it evolved into what about, um, what do we need to do to protect ourselves and our families? And then questions about, re more recent questions revolve around masking and about whether treatment is available, when vaccine is gonna be available, where if they are going to be immune or not immune after they've been exposed or have been diagnosed with COVID. And then some of the other questions revolve about the, the social economic aspects. So there's been a lot of concerns about food security, about transportation, particularly for those who are vulnerable elderly who may be living alone in their apartments and no one to check into them, and questions about what does it mean when we're still at stay, stay home Minnesota and long-term effects of that. So those are the questions that have evolved through the last three to four weeks. So as we move into the summer and uh, the social distancing rules that are in place and as states are beginning to reopen, have you noticed a change in the type of questions that are being asked? To Dr. Sia's point, we've really seen a shift, especially in the last week, towards more, uh, you know, recognizing that the transition from a sprint to a marathon, uh, more issues of uh, food insecurity has been am among the, the largest topics and other kind of social and economic uh, fallout that are going to be more than just in the immediate crisis. Mark, Irene, anything else we need to ask that we haven't asked thus far? What's really important is for the community to understand and to feel that they are being listened to rather than just us giving them information. It has been the bi-directional communication that I think is going to empower the community to really work with us uh, through this crisis and through this pandemic and through other health issues in the future. I wanted to ask you right now, we're going through Ramadan. And so a lot of our uh, Muslim uh, colleagues and uh, uh, community are going through this during the COVID-19 pandemic. What questions have arisen from them as they go through the month of Ramadan? The question I think was about, um, you know, how this affects and how, how they're gonna be doing Ramadan in a different way. And so we keep on emphasizing that even through this Ramadan, the social distancing, uh, guidelines still would be applied, particularly when they break their fast and make sure that they still practice the hand hygiene and social distancing. But other than that, I think uh, the community now has been attuned to the differences of, of what they need to do and what they should be taking precautions on. So, so Dr. Whelan, obviously uh, there are different customs that each particular uh, minority will uh, follow. Uh, what have you learned uh, over the last uh, several months now uh, with your uh, research and interaction with the different uh, ethnic communities? Yeah, in our regular calls with communication leaders from different communities, several of these culture-specific issues have arisen. Probably the most prevalent early on was from partners within the Muslim community, particularly the Somali community in, in Rochester, around uh, preparation of bodies in the context of, of the, the COVID pandemic, both those who may have died with or from the virus or just in the same uh, time. 
And so we were able to, to um, provide resources around that, lift up those those concerns to uh, to others in the community. I think that was one of the things that came up uh, early on about uh, funeral services, burials, and we were able to provide them with the answers through um, uh, resources that are available to us and following national guidelines. Community members have family around the world. Uh, they like to travel back and forth. Has that been uh, an issue uh, for education uh, with the different uh, communities? We have not seen that as a, as a major issue. You're right that people may visit relatives in other countries, but at least within our network, there's a very good, there's become a very good understanding that that's not appro appropriate in the context of the immediate crisis. We've been discussing health disparities in COVID-19. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic infectious diseases expert, Dr. Irene Sear, and community internal medicine physician, Dr. Mark Whelan. Thank you so much for your excellent work and research. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.